My name's Weymar. My name's Lewis. My name is Steve. And you are listening to the Everyone But Us podcast. Make some noise, please. Hey, yes, yes. You're listening to the Everyone But Us podcast. Straight from the heart of London. How are you guys doing? Um, me, I'm doing very well, thank you. Still on this furlough, COVID lockdown film. Been chilling, spinning doors, just doing a couple of little bits here and there. Recently put together a computer desk. Been playing loads of video games. My phone's still broke. And um, just been having fun. Just been playing with the dog and being with uh, my girl as well. So it's just been fun, man. I'm just, I'm just here laying low and just chilling, man. Just trying to think what's going to happen for for this year. But I can't. I don't have too many complaints, man. Like I'm healthy and been exercising a little bit more as well recently. So I'm trying to get rid of this, get rid of this lockdown fat around my belly as well. And I've been eating better as well. But overall, I'm doing very well. Thank you. I'm doing good. That's good to hear, man. What about you, Steve? How you doing, my brother? Good, good, thank you. Yeah, I mean, for me, recently it's just been uh, a case of trying to just sort of cope with the boredom, trying to keep myself occupied. But um, I did, I got a voiceover job that I finished a couple of weeks back. What was that for? Remember the PC game that I did the like, little minor character for last time? Yeah. I extended it and I did, they're putting that game out into the American market now. So all the voices are American. So I had to do an American voice. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, was, it was hard because I was sitting there and I had 5,500 words to do. And I'm sitting there with this American guy in the headphones and he's just, he's like, your pronunciation is wrong. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, fuck. Man. <laughs> anyway, man, we got a very special guest in the building. You can't mention New Jersey or New York hardcore without naming at least one of the bands he's been in. He's not only a dope drummer, but also a multi-instrumentalist. So without further ado, please welcome our guest, former drummer of One for One, former singer of Fat Nuts, past and present drummer of 20... and current bass player, I believe he used to play drums, for Homicidal. So please give it up for... Seth! Yep, yep, yep. Steph, did I get that all correct? Yes, you did. Oh, great, What's man. Up? <laughs> you know what? It's an absolute pleasure to, uh, to have you on the show, man. Like, how you been keeping, man? How are you? I'm not sure. I did, this whole COVID thing is just kind of like driving me crazy. I'm losing track of time, but I'm, I'm doing all right. <laughs> how, how do you feel about the vaccine? Are you going to take the vaccine? Uh, yeah, I'm going to take it. Uh, I don't know when it's going to be available for me, but... I will take it when it is. My mom took it. I was on the side of not wanting to take it at first, but now I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take it, man. Yeah, I was like kind of on a like a wait and see, and now I see, so I'm all right. So back in the 90s, when I was in my discovery phase of hardcore, us in London or the UK, we started to build relationships with um, a lot of the bands that were running up in mainland Europe. One of them bands was a band called Out for Blood from Belgium. And the singer from that band uh, was a guy called Alan, and he a label called RPP Records. RPP Records back in the day had some amazing releases, not only from Europe, but stateside as well. I remember I was playing a show in Europe somewhere and he had his distro out and I was going through the distro. And if there was something that was really good, he would always say to me, you need to hear that. And I remember going seven inches and seeing the We Won't Lose seven inch. I bought it, I took it home, I played it. And the thing that I remember is um, hearing that bass line. And then the guitars and the drums kicking in. You said, and from that moment, I was fucking in love, man. 
absolutely love that band. So um, before we get into One From One, because you were the drummer of that band, can you talk us about how you got into hardcore? I guess it was gradual because like, you know, I grew up a metalhead and uh, 1987, I was like real big into like Metallica, 88, I got into like Slayer. And so I was like gradually just going toward like heavier and heavier things. And then it's like the crossover bands that were coming out, uh, like like uh, SOD, DRI. Um, I, I got into a lot of those records. And like I was aware of what was going on in hardcore in the late 80s, even though I didn't go to a show until uh, 92. So like when I was 12 in 1989, uh, I have an older sister that it sh- I got into a lot of music through her too. She's five years older than me. And she had this um, older boyfriend that was like an old metalhead guy that I learned a lot from. And uh, he went to go see Suicidal at the Ritz in like October of 89. And like, I was all excited to hear him like come home and tell me about it. And then he came home and he's just like, oh, it it was horrible, man. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, all these skinheads, man, they were just beating the shit out of all the metalheads. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, what do you mean? Why? He's just like, they hate us, man. I don't know. I'm like, they, they got you? He's like, no, I, I didn't go near the front. He's like, if you went near the front and you had long hair, you were going to get killed, right? And he was just telling me, he's like, there's hundreds of them. And I was just like, man, I better stay away from these hardcore shows, man. <laughs> like, but it was still like, I was like curious. I was like, but why? I was like, they like heavy music. Why do they like beat the long hairs off? So I was like, you know, uh, curious about it. And then around the same time, um, they had another friend that was... Um, a really good drummer. He, they, they were calling him like the best drummer. I, I grew up on Staten Island, uh, New York, and uh, they were calling him the best drummer on the island. And so I was taking lessons from him and he was a metalhead, but his friend was a skinhead guy. He's actually in sheer terror now. His name was Johnny Eggs. They had this like TV show that they did together called The Violent Side of Comedy. They had this theme song and it was like a total hardcore song. It was like with the, you know, the fast hardcore beat. And then it broke down and like, you know, like it was just like, I loved that. I didn't really understand that that was hardcore yet, but like I used to listen to that all the time. And they had all this other music that they used to do. And like, I definitely got a lot of my drum style from a lot of that stuff, you know, because the guy was my teacher and everything too. The band that really did it was Biohazard. I was really into the first album when it came out. It was September 11th, 1992, Biohazard and Burn at this club, The Marquee in Manhattan. Yeah, that, that, was, that was my first show. And like, as soon as I got there, I just, I just felt like these were my people. Again, I was a metalhead, but I cut my hair early. I cut my hair in like 1990 because I started growing it when I was like eight and I was just tired of it already. And then after I cut my hair, like all these people were like, oh, you don't like metal. Oh, you're a poser. And like a lot of them, it's like, I was into metal way before you. Like, what are you even talking about? You know, yeah, and then yeah. I, I go to the hardcore show and everybody had short hair, you know, everyone dressed like I dressed, you know, and like, like the lyrics and the vibe weren't really representative, rep, uh, representing the neighborhood, you know, like where, like when I heard Biohazard, like I'm in Staten Island, they mentioned Staten Island in the song. It was just like, they talked like people from my neighborhood. It, Bobby reminded me of this kid, Anthony, that was in my neighborhood. Like it just, it, it just felt like the place to be. That was right around the time that they filmed the um, Punishment video. Like they filmed it maybe like a month after that. So like what you see in that punishment video is like basically the scene that I walked into. Like when when, I, when the punishment video came out, I was like, oh shit, these are all those uh, people at all those shows. That's that's why I, I didn't realize this, but that punishment video, there was a lot of, um, I think Isaac was in it. I think, was it Victor, Victor Life? Victor was in Life it? was in it, yeah. And I didn't know this until like, I'm talking about within the last five years. 
I heard it on a podcast somewhere. I went back and watched the video and I was like, oh shit. I'm like, oh, I was pointing at the video and I was like, oh shit, that's this person. That's that person, man. Bulldog started at that video shoot. Oh, really? Yeah, because Chris, the drummer, he he was there and that's where he met Kevin and told him that, you know, they, they had a band called Retribution, which was Bulldogs before Kevin, like uh, Puda would sing and play bass at the same time, yeah. but he didn't want to sing anymore. So he was like, so Chris told him like, hey, we're looking for a singer. Uh, and it was at that biohazard uh, video shoot that wow, it all started. Wow, man. See, exclusive. So Bulldo started at the punishment video shoot. I feel like that whole wave of hardcore that came out, of New York hardcore that came out at that time, like was like an offshoot of that video. Because it's like, you know, you had Marauder, you had Crown of Thorns, you know. So it was just like, that video was like the launching of everything. So that was about 92, 93? 92, yeah. The show I went to was... Uh, September 11th, 92. Cause I, I always like look at it like, cause rabies died exactly like five years later. So like my first five years in hardcore, like that's how I like look at it. Like between those dates. Once you was like emerged in the scene, what was the New Jersey hardcore scene like back then? Were there any particular bands that were killing it? What were your influences? That's when I was like, just moved to New Jersey too. Um, I had come from the Staten Island first and then, then I went there and that's, so I didn't really know about much what was going on in New Jersey. But before I had a hardcore band, I was in a metal band. Uh, it was actually my sister's boyfriend that was the singer of the band. Everyone was like 10 years older than me. I was 15 and we had a show um, opening for the Bad Brains at Studio One. Oh, and shit. I still didn't know too much about who the Bad Brains were. I knew they were like a legendary band, but I, like, I hadn't heard them yet. I didn't understand why. It's not like you just go look them up on the internet. You know, That show was with Bloodline. Retribution, you know, who was Bulldoze, uh, Strength, uh, and like all the bands that wound up being like that scene. And we went on first and, uh, you know, people don't like metal bands when you're hardcore, <laughs> when you play that a hardcore show. So they definitely didn't like us. Uh, I had written like one hardcore song because I was trying to take like the band in that direction. I was like, all right, when we play that song, everything's going to be great. But it wasn't. And uh <laughs> So, and then like the band was like getting nervous. They were like, I think we should leave. You know, like, I think these people want to kill us or whatever. I was like, no, nah, come on, let's hang out. Like, oh, actually before that, um, I, I saw the Bad Brains soundcheck at least, which was like great. They like blew me away. I was like, holy shit. It wasn't with the uh, HR though. It was uh, when they had Israel, but they were still great. Yeah. So we left, but it kind of just like made me interested in like those other bands playing. Cause I'd see them like on all the, um, there was this paper that came out weekly called the Aquarian and it would list all like the shows coming out. And it was like those same bands, like every week. So it kind of made me want to find out more about those bands. And then there was this band called the human offense. And I had actually gone to high school with the drummer, but he'd already graduated. And I really liked them a lot. And then I guess VOS, which is, really one for one was like the first Jersey band, I guess I got really into uh, outside of the human offense. One for one came from this band VOS. So Dan was the singer and um, Mike, the bassist, uh, he, he was the bassist. And then they had these, other, these two other guys, uh, Chris Shannon and Jim King. They went on to be in that band UXB that was on the New York's hardest comp. And then they were also in that band uh, Demon Speed. And some of the songs that are on the one for three of the songs from the one for one demo were VOS songs. And so, yeah, I was, I was really into them. And then I got into Strength, Bulldoze, although it was called New York Hardcore. Kevin was the only one uh, from New York. The studio one scene that came into was, yeah, it was like Bulldoze, Bloodline, all this band, IDK, who was like, um, I guess they were like pop punk, but before it was like pop punk, they were still like a harder edge to it. 
they were really good. Those were like the, the main bands of that, that Studio One scene at that time. How did One for One actually start then? Whose idea was it? Who came up with a name? How did you start drumming for them? It was uh, February 1994, and I was in a band called Push Too Far. Actually, I had another band with Dan and you know Mike One for One. And uh, Chris, who went up later being in Fat Nuts and then on the, in search of uh, CD for One for One, and Andy uh, called One Family. So we had all like been playing together already. Like so, everyone in that band was at One for One in a in a later point. And so um, we all were already familiar with jamming with each other. So then Dan just calls me up one day. He's like, "Yo, do you want to play drums for VOS?" And I was like confused. I'm like, "What? What happened?" He's like, "They wanted to kick me out. They wanted to get like a more metal singer and go in a more metal direction." But Mike wanted to be hardcore. So Mike and Dan were just like, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to stay hardcore. And so it was originally just to fill in for this one show that they had coming up uh, on February 19th. Ray, who wound up being our guitarist, he was in a band called Hard Knocks. And actually the songs, uh, two songs from the One for One demo came from that band. And so we, we had just a few days to like get this all together to play that show. So we were booked under VOS. A lot of our early shows were booked under VOS because it was just like finishing up the remaining shows that they had. So when we came out at that first show, we had no name. Dan just got the name from his address. His address was 414 uh, East Lincoln Avenue. And he was just like oh, looking wow. at it and he just, he just flipped the numbers around. Oh, dope, man. <laughs> yeah. That's a sick name as well. Did, did VOS have the same sort of sound as one for one then? Yes and no. Um, like, because the dude that played drums, he was an he is an incredible drummer, and like I was intimidated by this guy's drumming. Like he was just like technically on point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had they, they had a little bit more of a progressive edge to them. Um, yeah. The drummer and the guitarist, and so I definitely could not play it things the way he plays them. But I think me doing it in my more hardcore style made it what it was. You know. Yeah, yeah. When we was all getting into hardcore, that one for one sound was what well what I personally was really into. It kind of mixed it was old school, but it had that the heavy parts in there. Do you know what I mean? It had the, tar the yeah. dark parts in there, man. And that's what I took a lot of my influences from. I don't know about Steve or Lewis. I don't know if you want to comment on that. The first time I heard about a one for one, I think I must have been around DBS's and he put it on his his um it must have come up on his uh, what's it called on his iPod or whatever it is at the time, like on the shuffle. And um, it was that Committed for Life tune that's on um, In Search Of. I think that's the first full length. And when I heard it, just like the intro to the tune and then obviously the the, the heavy breakdowns as well. I was like, damn, this band sounds like... It, it's, it sounds like... I didn't know they were from New Jersey, but it sounded like a New York hardcore band. But there was just a little... There was, there was You know, obviously New York hardcore got that particular sound, but this band sounded like a New York hardcore band, but it had just like a bit much of a different edge. And then there was that um, that other tune, My Time, and like for an intro with the bass lick. Like, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. we might talk about this album in a bit, but the intro to that, like, for me, it's probably one of the best intros with a bass to start off a, to start off a song. So after that, I was like, obviously, a lot of the stuff is out of print. I think I managed to actually get the seven inch here, but everything else, obviously, CD wise, and that obviously you can't get anymore. So I was just literally just checking them out on YouTube for for a good amount of time. And obviously, Pelbo used to post up a lot of one for one stuff on the Facebook and Matty, Matty Bar as well. He's big yeah. time into one for one. So, like, yeah, that's how I basically got into the band, just off the back of you older guys just being into it. Like, so, yeah, I'm thankful. Yeah, we're definitely going to jump into the album a bit later on. But 
Seth, like, can you describe when you started writing songs for One for One, what type of style were you looking for? We were not all on the same page. So a lot of it was like a, a compromise. Like, you know, like I first got into like all the biohazard and stuff. But then I like, as I got into hardcore, started going to shows, I started going back into the 80s and really getting into like the fast old school stuff. And I really like fast. And so I was looking for that, you know, fast and then the big heavy, heavy breakdown. And so me and Dan and Mike were more into like a lot of the older school stuff. Uh, Ray had a completely different idea for his vision on guitar. He was more into like that groovier stuff. Like I'm a lot more raw. He's a more lot, like cleaner and tighter. He was looking to go, like, you know, he wound up forming Agents of Man. And so he was kind of looking to go in that direction when One for One started. And you could kind of, you know, hear it in in the guitar work. So, you know, a lot of it was just like um, us shooting down each other's ideas. Yeah. You know, and then what comes out is what comes out, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The demo was a little different, though, because um, a lot of the demo songs were written before the band started. And we just kind of made them our own because like the only song that was new for the one for one demo was control okay man that's an interesting point about you know what when you're in a band and everyone's got conflicting ideas i hate it i hate it like well you think the song should go this way the other person thinks the song should go that way but i think sometimes compromising brings out the best in the song because it's like a blend of ideas rather than just one person's one person's vision me and Ray, we can't be in a band together. It just, it can't happen. Like we're friends. I can hang out with him anytime, you know, like put us in a room in a studio together. No, it's not going to work. Oh, really? So like it's gone past the compromising phase. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Cause we, we got back together in 2007 for a little bit. Uh, we're like, all right, you know, we're older now. We could do this, you know, like, uh, but we could not. <laughs> we, we, it's a, it's a, we got that one song out and, uh, it took us a long time just to squeeze that out. Or like, all right, we're going to go through a whole nother year of this and maybe get one more song now. From London's very own Ironed Out comes the brand new album, We Move As One. Featuring Pavement Strong, Pagans, Crazy Old World and a re-recorded version of ACAB, We Move As One is a 12-track dose of reality straight from the big smoke. Down For Life magazine calls it some of the most interesting and exciting music in hardcore right now. Pick up your copy on CD or crystal clear vinyl from the Ironed Out Big Cartel, from gsrmusic.com or from ruction.com. So the one for one seven inch, how did you get the link with RPP? I mean, with it being a Belgian based label and this was pre-internet, you know, communication was a lot harder back then. So how did that come about? So our first two shows were at Studio One and then our next show was uh, March 20th, 94 in Long Island at the Right Track Inn. And um, Elaine was at that show. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, he, he was at that show and he saw us and then he contacted Dan and then they were in touch through letters uh, for a while. But that's how it all happened. Oh, wow, man. When In Search Of came out, man, like, again, I, I had that on rotation nonstop, man. What was it like putting that album together? I know you said when you first got together, you clashed heads. Did you have the same problem with writing In Search Of? We didn't have the, the same problems, but we definitely had a lot of problems because there had been a lot of lineup changes by the time we got to the um, CD. So me and Dan are the only original members on the CD, but um, I had left the band for a while and I just come back but it was like a maybe like almost a year i was out of the band and that's when like fat nuts really started going so we put out the um two 
fat nuts seven inches in between that time. The in search of lineup is fat nuts, but with Dan singing. It's funny you say that because I was listening to some fat nut stuff on YouTube and I played bass in a band called Ironed Out. And what I loved about the bass sound on Fat Nuts is you had that kind of weird flangey kind of effect on it. Like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And I, I loved it, man. I loved it. So what you're saying, yeah, with it being the same band members, it all makes sense now. Yeah, it's like, um, th- there are a bunch of alive. Like, first I left, and then they had another drummer for a while, and then um, and they had a different drummer and a different second guitarist. And then that drummer and guitarist left. And then... Um, Kenny from E-Town Concrete actually replaced uh, that guitarist that he was playing with us for a while. And that's when I joined the band. So it was like me, Kenny came on guitar. I brought Chris with me on bass. We played like one show that we got together really quick. We started writing with um, Kenny and then E-Town told him like, you got to make a choice, you know? And so he, so he stayed with E-Town. <laughs> You know, but uh, it just started to be like, you know, conflicting shows and stuff, you know. And so then when Kenny left, I, we brought Shaggy in. But the thing was, they had already planned to record this CD before I even rejoined the band. But now, like, we have to get a lineup together really quick and everyone has to learn the songs really quick. And we have to record in a few days and we have like a limited budget. And then Andy wound up having to go to the hospital. And so he's, even though he wrote songs on it, he didn't actually play on the CD. So it's all Shaggy. Uh, on guitar but he had just learned a lot of the songs oh, so man. like like i actually hate that cd oh really not not because of the songs because i know how much better everything sounded a month later yeah you know? and it it just kills me that, that that's not the recording that we uh did yeah. i like the way the songs that were new for the cd came out but the songs that were from like the demo and the seven inch that we re-recorded we didn't have time to like properly learn them yeah because you know? yeah. like the title track was actually originally a Fat Nuts song that I never wrote lyrics for yet. So we're like, all right, well, we could use this one. And I, I had no idea what to do with it. And like, you know, I think Dan is great at coming up with like vocal lines and stuff. So I was like, well, I'll let him, him deal with that one. Um, Voice of Reason. I love that song. Andy wrote that song. So like those songs I thought came out good. Committed for Life came out good. But like it would have been better if we had more time to get the older songs down. Yeah, it's, you know what? It's funny, like... I've recorded so much stuff, right, that I listen back to it and I fucking hate it. I'm like, oh, the guitar's wrong or the, the speed's too fast. And other people say to me, oh, I love that song or I love this song. And, and I'm like, I absolutely hate it. So I'm the same with you when it comes to listening back to stuff, man. Zip, did you do much touring with One for One? I mean, we always play like locally, like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Like we went as far down as Virginia and as far north as uh, Montreal, we did Montreal with Warzone. And that was like, that was one of our best shows with that lineup. But then I wound up joining 25 to Life not too much long after. And so I wound up, uh, I couldn't do both bands anymore. It was just, uh, you know, it wasn't fair to, the, to, to them because they had to cancel shows if I had to go away. So like, or find a, someone to fill in. So, so I had to leave. Before we get into 25 to Life, I was just going to ask you, like, what were some of your favorite places to play? Because over here, we used to always hear about Wetlands or Coney Island, CBGBs. Number one, uh, definitely Studio One because that was like our home base. And like that place was huge it would fit like 2000 people they had like big shows there like sepultura played there like when chaos ad came out merciful fate played there like that's where like fear factory obituary would play that's where like biohazard like the big biohazard shows life of agony doggy dog so we geared our shows like toward like making that dance floor move like i mean we geared our songs we were writing like that was the whole goal like was to get that place with 2000 people to open up from front to back 
and when it did happen at studio one uh it was just like a, a a beautiful thing like just people just violently killing each other like there's a couple of videos on youtube one for one playing at that studio one and just seeing people how they were just throwing each throwing like off the stage it was kind of there was a barrier there where you had people who um working at the venue on one side of it but the single could actually get close to obviously pass the mic along and that but just seeing people just jump off into the crowd and it was just incredible like and slam dancing as well obviously of that that time and that style was just like nuts 2,000 people I mean was that like a, would that be like a festival or oh well no it, I mean it didn't fill up like that every night like, when a big metal <laughs> band would play though that that's what it uh, that's what it could do like Life Agony Doggy Dog was packed but like or, or like a regular hardcore show with like just regular hardcore bands you'd probably have maybe 100 200 it'd be a lot of space <laughs> it'd be yeah. a lot of space man there was you know there's a lot of death metal shows there too and so there were a lot of kids out like we're going like they go to every death metal show and every hardcore show we were just like always there you know like that was our spot oh and the barrier though that was only um one show that the barrier was there for i don't know why they put it there okay you know what there was a kid that got killed at a life of agony show in brooklyn but it was the bouncer the bouncer threw this kid off the stage and he landed on it on his neck after that, a lot of clubs got nervous about getting like sued and stuff. So that show was right after that kid got killed. I think that was the only show that that they had it. But just just a quick sidebar, going back to what Lewis was saying about New York hardcore. To me, it always seemed like New Jersey and New York hardcore was one of the same thing. Am I right in saying that? Or it depends who you say that. <laughs> Is that now? I don't want to offend. I don't want to offend anyone out there if, if if I've said something offensive. But that's how it felt to me. It felt. I know New Jersey's the same place, New York's the same place, but it seemed like a lot of the bands kind of intermingled with each other more than other scenes. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it's close, you know, like uh, especially North Jersey, like the Studio One scene. You know, that that was um, Newark which is 20 minutes from Manhattan. So a lot, a, lot, a lot of people from New York would come. There were a lot of different scenes in Jersey, though. There was also like um, a big straight edge scene throughout like a lot of the state. I felt like that was different than the Newark scene, you know? Like, yeah, it, yeah. like the Newark scene was much more violent, much more related to what was going on, on in New York. And then there was the Shore scene, which was like Fury of Fives, uh, you know, home uh, territory. And that was a nice violent scene too. But those guys would always come up to our scene too. Like I always saw those guys uh, in Newark and everything. All right. So there was never like no beef or anything like between New Jersey. Because when I mentioned it, you laughed. So was there any sort of like any tension between the two scenes at any point or was it always all love? Oh, no, no. It's just, just, uh, you know, busting shops. I mean, a lot lot of guys that are like known for being New York guys are really, you know, Jersey, Jersey. you know, like, you know. I always find that weird because like, and I'm not pulling, I'm not digging no one out. Right? I don't want no one to listen to this and feel like I'm digging them out. But you get people that live outside of London, but then call their band London Hardcore. But I think it's cool to associate your name with New York because it gives you that platform straight away. Yeah. I mean, when we played um, Canada for the first time, we get up there and the flyers all say New York Hardcore. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're like, hardcore. Yeah. we didn't make this, but I guess the promoter felt that that was the better way to go. And then the same thing happened uh, for, you know, some of the shows we played in Europe, you know, I'm like, all right, you know, like I'm not going to complain because I'm from New York anyway. And my loyalty will always be to New York because that's where I, you know, that's where I grew up, you know, because I didn't go to Jersey till high school. So but I still have loyalty to New Jersey, you know, like if, if New York, this is New Jersey, I'll defend New Jersey and, and vice versa. But I, I know people from New York, like just hate New Jersey. They don't really hate the people from New Jersey, but like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to get it out of Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, but it's all love, which is just busting chops, you know? 
a lot of those people live in New Jersey now, like the New York people that, uh, you know, busted on Jersey. So in the sense of branding, obviously when hardcore first sort of like took off, obviously you had DC, you had Boston, you had New York. So obviously the bigger cities and the ones that sort of where it started are the ones that more people are going to gravitate to, especially sort of like worldwide. So once you've got something which is worldwide and people from say the UK or from Germany or from France, and then the US band goes over, they just automatically think, oh, they're a New York hardcore band because they sound like this particular sort of style or this sound. Because Richie mentioned it recently as well on, on a podcast. Let's um, make a podcast. Where he was saying... Big up. He mentioned when he went over with Crutch, they had um, New York hardcore at the bottom and they were like, what the fuck, man? We're, like, we're oh, PA yeah, hardcore, that, you yeah, know yeah. what I'm saying? So most people probably just associate that everything is coming out of New York at the time. And obviously that's not the, not the truth because... Obviously, New Jersey had some great bands, and bands in Pennsylvania as well had some some heavy hitters as well. But just one of those things, isn't it? Like, is that the tri-state, New York, New Jersey, and PA? I think, or it might be Connecticut and not PA. I forget. <laughs> I think it's Connecticut. I think it's you could be. You know, sometimes I know, and then I forget, and I, I get them switched all the time. But you know, oh, another okay. thing too is like New Jersey bands weren't really calling themselves New Jersey, as far as I know. A lot of the bands are from New Jersey. They called themselves New York. But then in the early 90s, uh, like Studio One bands were like proud to be New Jersey. You know, like uh, NJ Bloodline put that NJ in their name. That, that, that was uh, a big deal, you know, because like, yeah. you know, people weren't really representing uh, Jersey like that. And um, one of uh, my good friends, Uncle Mark, uh, rest in peace, uh, we'll call him the godfather of New Jersey hardcore. As far as I know, He's the first person to get NJHC uh, tattooed on him. He was like the one I always remember just like going around like NJHC, like bringing it to New York, you know, and like kind of like making everybody like proud to say they're from New Jersey, you know. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Fury of Five put out that song, uh, you know, taking respect and everything. So then people started becoming more proud of New Jersey. And Mark was like the one that like, uh, you know, he's from Elizabeth. He was the founder of ETAC. E-Town Assault Crew. Him, my friend Willie, they were in a band called uh, Hard Knocks. And so, like, they brought the E-Town guys around. And so, like, you know, then E-Town, of course, very proud of, of New Jersey and of E-Town, you know? I feel like that's where, like, New Jersey's kind of became its own thing, like that period. Also, big up Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick story. I remember my first time going to New York and I flew into Newark and I, I come back to the airport. I don't know... I got the wrong bus. I got lost. And some dude comes up to me. He goes, what are you trying to get to, man? And I'm like, uh, Manhattan. And he goes, you need to get out of here because you'll get shot. And I was like, okay, thank you, man. <laughs> Welcome to Newark. I want to ask you, man, like, so you was in One for One. Then you decided to start Fat Nuts, which you sung in. And then you 25 to life. So can you just, again, just explain that timeline. How did Fat Nuts start? Why did you decide, what, did you want to get into singing? And, and the 25 to life, just how did that whole um, process start with you being in the band? A lot of it was kind of like overlapping and gradual. Fat Nuts started um, September of 94. We were trying out second guitars and um, Shaggy came down to try out. At that time, the demo had just come out and he didn't have it yet. So he only knew the VOS demo. So he only knew one song that we were playing, um, the song No. 
And so he jammed that with us. And when we, he didn't know any of the other songs, he's like, hey, you guys know any Chromex songs? And uh, I was just like, yeah. So we just started jamming Chromex songs. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I want this guy. They wanted, the rest of the band wanted to go with someone else. And, you know, like that was like the direction I wanted to go in, like that more old school stuff. And I was like, you know what? They don't want to go with you, but um, yeah, let, let's do something. We'll do something like old school, you know, like me and you, we'll, we'll, we'll do another band. Fuck it, right? And then he brought in... Brian, who sings for Homicidal, he was our first bass player, but he don't really play bass, so that didn't really work out. But that's how I met Brian. And then um, Andy, who was you know the, the guitar player from One for One, he came in on bass for like a, a minute, and I forget what happened there. Then we got Chris. You know, it was just the three of us on, on the demo. Actually, yeah, I was originally just playing drums, and it was kind of like a continuation of the band Push Too Far I was in, although not musically, but we had that singer singing originally and we had written like um a couple of songs uh we'd written the song understand and then we wrote some other songs that really weren't so great and got dropped before we recorded anything it was just like us starting the writing process and then it was when we wrote the song rise above and i wrote the lyrics for that that i was just like i'm singing this <laughs> so it wasn't really working out with the singer i was like we'll find a drummer instead i posted it on on youtube this year, uh, well, last year now. Yeah, I saw um, all the seven inches and stuff and some live, I saw some live clips and stuff. Yeah, it was like a, um, a spontaneous set we did in the basement of Studio One and we were doing all covers and stuff. And then so like I started singing the truth and like I just got into it. I was like, you know what? I, I want to sing. And then I remember one day I was uh, going for a job interview. I remember my car door was broken and it was like hanging off by like a rope. The heat wasn't working. And it was freezing. It was in December. <laughs> And I got stuck in traffic and then I wound up missing the interview and I was just like fucking mad as hell sitting in traffic. And I was listening to United Blood screaming every word and everyone sitting in traffic is like looking at me like, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? And that was when I made the decision like, yeah, I'm singing for this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone but us. Straight from the heart of London. Let's talk about 25 to life, man. How did that come about then? That was kind of gradual too, because um, I was a big 25 to life fan. I remember my friend Andy heard them first. Like I'd see them on flyers when they were first starting. And then they played uh, the Life of Agony record release party. And uh, VOS actually played that show, but I didn't go. But my friend Andy came home. He's like, yo, you got to see 25 to life. They're fucking great. You got to check this band out. And then four days later, they were playing. Listen to this show. You're going to be like, you're going to be bugged out when you hear that this show is empty. Yeah, hit me, man. Hit me. It was uh, Sick of It All, Warzone, Marauder, oh 25 God. to Life, um, Roguish Armament, and then like this jam of like um, guys from Biohazard. I remember it was like Evan, Bobby, I think Billy, but I forget who was on drums. And they were just doing like minor threat covers. It, it, it was really cool. And like, yeah, there was nobody there. Warzone went on first, right? And nobody danced. This was my first time seeing Warzone. I mean, there was barely anyone there, but I was like 16. I'm like, you know, younger. And like, there's all these older guys. So I didn't want to be like the guy to like set it off. I was still like new and nervous. Um, yeah. And like n- nobody danced for Warzone. Because this was like, they had a little bit of a like um, period. Because like, you know, they did that that third album and they went like a different style. Yeah, and, like, people um, were like, yeah. Then they had to like build back. So this was like the beginning of them like coming back. Yeah. And I, I just couldn't believe it because I loved Warzone and I like wanted to go crazy. I, I just didn't understand. I was like, why is no one moving? And then 25 came on and I was like, yo, this is fucking great. I thought Rick sounded like obituary, you know, and I was like, this is like and it's like death metal. Well, this is before he was like that. He didn't really get to that <laughs> yeah. until like 
later. Like, I wish he never did do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, okay, like, his it. voice definitely changed. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, you know, his agnostic front went on tour with Obituary, uh, and Rick was a roadie, like the one voice tour. And then, so I guess, like, he was just like, I'm going to rip off. Yeah. And I'm going to rip off Roger in my whole life. Uh. <laughs> Based on, on everything I saw on this tutorial, I can hear Roger Merritt in, in some of his early stuff, especially coming correct. You can hear um, that Roger Merritt influence. But yeah, sorry, carry on, carry on, man. I met Rick that day. Uh, I bought a demo off of him. Uh, and then I started going to a lot of the shows. And so, like, you know, I, I got to know him a little bit. And then one day um, we went to go see uh, it was Life of Agony 25 to Life and Sub Zero at the Grand. It was December 29th, 93. And then we were coming home and. Um, it was just me and the two kids I went with. And then Rick was just by himself on the train. And we were like, oh, shit, what's up? I gave him my, I gave him a demo with the band Push Too Far is in. I had my number on it. And then he called me up asking, like, you know, if we wanted to do shows. Then he started hooking one for one up with shows. And so, like, I was kind of just always around every uh, 25 Life show. And then um, it was November 19th, 1994. It was a one for one bulldoze 25 Life and Lost in the System in upstate New York. And 25 to Life didn't show up. Like Rick showed up and the band wasn't there. I, I don't know what the reason was. It might've been that he didn't tell them. I don't know, uh, <laughs> but they weren't there. And so like we put something together like really quick and that's where it started. And like we were shuffling around. It's on YouTube. Um, oh, so you played that show? Yeah, that, that was that was where it started. Okay. And then, then we did it again at Studio One when the same thing happened uh, in the basement of Studio One with even more songs so it was like me on drums for some, uh, uh, like we switched around i played bass on a song i played guitar on a song uh and then chris from bulldoze played drums on some songs um and then mike one for one was playing bass then after that he calls me up like maybe two months later and he's like yo harry can't make it this weekend can you do these shows the show started the next day so i had to learn the songs really quick and so i learned like all those songs. So then I started filling in a lot, but then Rick started doing all these other things that he shouldn't have been doing. I didn't know that the band didn't know, but he was, there were shows that if the band couldn't make it, he would still play anyway. One time it was like me and Mike, Jay Fury was on guitar. Actually we did a couple of shows that, like that with Jay Fury on guitar. Yeah. So then by the time Harry left the band for real, I knew all the songs and I was the regular filling drummer for a while. So uh, it was kind of just like natural. So he was like booking, booking shows that he knew the band couldn't do. Um, I think he would book the show before finding out if they could. <laughs> I don't know with him, you know, like, yeah, he's, yeah. um, <laughs> he's, he's, I don't know what's wrong with him. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for, for whatever reason, but he, he, he made it seem like, you know, like, like the band, wouldn't have a problem with it, you know, but, uh, was there, was, was there a point when you was officially, when did you officially become a 25 to life, the 25 to life drummer? Was that a uh, conversation or you just kept on playing and it just, well, Harry left the band in November of 96. Harry, yeah. Harry was a fan member of 25 to life. Right. Yeah. He's the original drummer. He played on the demo, the seven inch keeping it real in New York's hardest. And so, yeah, he, he, uh, left in November and then Rick just called me up. And this is when I was back in, in one for one. And this was like right after we did the in search of record release party. He's like, you want to uh, record a record with us and go to Japan and join 25 live? I was like, yes, I do. 
<laughs> I didn't even think about it, you know, like, uh, I was like, yeah, you know, uh, but I wasn't like officially in the band, you know, I was still like technically like just like filling in for a moment. And then like two months later, like, you know, they, they pulled me to the side and they were like, you know, you want to do it for real? And, you know, cause I was going to have to leave one for one to do that, you know? And so I was like, yeah, yo, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll do it. How was that conversation with one for one? Did they, the lads like, yeah, go for it. Was they a bit pissed off with you they were they were understanding they they already had like filling drummers for the shows like like when we had were booked on the same day so it's not like they you know were left uh stranded i, I remember the first time hearing 25 to life was spoken about this on previous shows but i used to just go to record stores and we would just pick cds based on what the cover looked like oh this looks kind of hardcore this looked like this particular style and i think raymond the drummer from knuckle dust he must have uh, come across the 25 to life CD in some store somewhere. So he came home, he played it. And I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, I didn't exactly know what hardcore was sound wise. One minute I thought it was fast. Another time I'd think it was slow, but then the more I listened to it, the more I just, I started to get it. I've got, I've got a feeling for me, it might've been strength for unity. Maybe for me, it was the New York hardcore documentary on the VHS. Of course. That's what that's how can we forget that? That's when I that's when I first saw obviously I knew about Madborn and AF and a couple of other bands, but um hearing Crown of Thorns and Twenty Five to Life, I was like I need to find these fucking bands fucking releases soon, man. But um it was just Rick's interview. He sang he, he he came across weird, but he was also kind of very charming as well. So I can see why a lot of people and he'd done a lot for the scene back then. Obviously, yeah, he's a bit of a pariah and a bit of a, a weird a weird guy now and shit, but Back then, he was just out there, just putting out different bands, and just wanting to uh, to just spread the gospel of hardcore. But obviously, he did have very questionable practices as well and shit. I remember buying a fucking CD from him at um, the Underworld when they came over and they played with that Argentinian band Nueva Etica. I think it was like two thousand and eight or something. And uh, he was all fucking fat and shit. And I was like, oh shit, it's ripped to life, man. Like fucking, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was stoked, man. Cause you, you know, you see someone like watching, yeah, he was... I used to watch the shit out of that fucking video. So then when I actually saw him and this is, I think after um, all the shit, I think it might've been before all the shit that went down, obviously when he went through his, his, his um, mental health episode. But yeah, I bought a CD and I was like, oh, so stoked to get home, looked at it. I got it home, I opened it up and it was like, a4 bit of paper and the fucking CDR and I was like what the fuck's this like I was uh, I, 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 I was numbed. I was like oh okay this is this is how it is cool but then years later hearing stories like yeah he would just rip fucking he would just print off a fucking cover and just fucking burn CDs and sell them at fucking full price and like, yeah I paid full price for it so but still it was still listenable You could, it wasn't fucked up or anything but yeah that was my the New York Harker documentary is my introduction to a lot of great bands and um that was definitely one of them, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, my first correspondence with Rick was... Because um, one thing I would say is that Rick put me onto a lot of music, man. He put me onto Fat Nuts. He put me onto Crutch, E-Town. I, I've got all them seven inches in my house. Like, And back then, when I sent the money, I, I, my vinyl, my vinyl, it, would, it could take two, three months, but it did eventually turn up. Do you know what I mean? Getting back to 25 to life, I was going to say... So when you joined, what was that? Did you end up doing the tour in Japan? Yeah, yeah. It, it was the, like most incredible leaving the state experience that I've ever had. Like, it was just like, the shows were like packed. It's like, you know, we play some big shows out here, but like we go out there and it was just like a whole nother level. Like the, the last show we played in Tokyo, it was so packed that we couldn't even go inside the club until it was time to play. Cause it was just nowhere. Not even like backstage, you know, it was just 
like oh, mom, really? and, uh, like yeah, they were they were, just, and you know it, it's it was different there. Like is well, just being there was crazy because it's like I had never left the continent before. So I like you know the only other country I'd been to is Canada, which is very like the United States. Uh, so just being in a, in a different country was uh, crazy for me, and it was like traveling into the future for me. Like they were just like so like, technologically. <laughs> Like everyone had cell phones in '97. Yeah, that's Holy wild. Shit, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, then we get there, and it, it was like a, it's a different culture. Like we we grab a, a magazine off the street, and like we open it up, and like we're in it, you know. And then like there's like wow. advertisements, like like in the regular like events going on, you know that like we're playing, and like and it, they're like everywhere. It's like it, it felt like we were like a mainstream act almost you know we didn't want to go home and like i had never i had signed i think two autographs before i went to japan in my life <laughs> and then we get out there and there's people like waiting on lines and we had to like devote like a serious amount of time to it and i was just like is this really happening like this is just like bugged out how many people we talk well they weren't like big big clubs so like i i i'm i guess i'm overstating when i say mainstream i'm just saying because it was like in the regular papers and stuff that's why i was like thinking that like the regular magazines but you know like the the first show was probably like a few hundred like 400 500 but it was a small place and it was like packed and they were they were going nuts then the second show was in osaka and that was a much bigger club so we didn't pack it but it was a lot of people uh this club bayside jenny and that was like a big club that like mainstream acts were going i remember foxy brown was playing there like two days later and that was their super bowl of hardcore that show was incredible and me and fred started violent dancing out there like uh because when we got out there it was like it was different like everyone would just like jump up and down you know like they weren't like going nuts and then like so the first night like i was like yo let's dance like we dance and uh Everyone's like, no, we can't do that. You know, like, uh, they don't do that here. And then like, but I just wanted to do it, you know? And I'm like, all right. So then the next day, I remember one of the bands did a killing time cover. Like I ran out front, I started going crazy. But then uh, I told like Fred, I'm like, yo, let's just dance. He's like, yeah, let's do it. So we just started dancing. Like we dance at shows in uh, New York and everyone was just like loving it. Everyone just like backed up and they were like pointing. <laughs> and, and, and then they just started copying. And then, then next thing you know, like the whole club was doing it, and it, uh, it was the most incredible thing. Like, um, I sick. Yeah, we were called a fantasy island. That's amazing. I'm gonna get a t-shirt with that. Let's dance. Was that? Let's dance the way we dance. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> That's one of my things, man. To play Japan one day, man. If just just if it just happens once, I just want to be able to see another side of the world and play a show in a different continent line. I think Japan will be the perfect place to do that. One day it will happen. One day it will happen, God willing. I hope so. But just just talking about Fred, like, I've just got to give that guy props. He is an amazing riff writer, man. Oh, yeah. All that classic 25 to life stuff. He wrote most of the riffs in my white sand. Most of them. Um, I mean, I wasn't there for the demo. Like, I know Frank, the original bass player, had a large role in a lot of the riffs on the demo and a lot of the early stuff, too. But, I mean, Fred definitely wrote a lot of it. While I was in the band, you know, Fred wrote almost every riff. Actually, I should say during that period, because the the more recent lineup is is still mostly Fred, though, but, like, uh, some other guys wrote riffs, too. Beto wrote the song um, Violence, Fate, um, and The Hate. I wrote Absence of Sincerity. That was actually a Fat Nuts song originally. And then Mike wrote one riff on that album um, in the song Make It Work. But Fred wrote every other riff. I, I know Beto's guitar for that um, harmonic squeal that he does. 
that was one of the things that really turned me on to the band. I mean, I was into the band already when he joined, but when I first heard him doing that, I was just like, you know, like, what is that? How do you do that? And like, I I had him teach me how to do that. Like, he's the one that taught me how to do dive bonds, you know? I learned a lot about guitar being in 25 Life uh, because me and Beto would, um, we would live in Jersey and then Fred and Warren lived in um, Manhattan and Queens. So they would usually like go in one car and then me and Beto would be in another car going to shows. And so like, we just talk guitar. Fred's a, a master riff writer and I love the way their two sounds blend together. And I was a big fan of that. Uh, before I joined the band. So like having the, I, the opportunity to write beats with them was an opportunity I could not pass. You have no idea how Fred, like he can, he, you're only getting like 5% of the riffs he actually writes when you hear the songs. Like he could just, he just nonstop, like awesome riff after awesome riff. He has like a zillion hours of riffs on hard drives at his house. There's just so many. Yeah, he, he's he's one of the best riff writers that you could find. Twenty five to life. What did you what did you what did you actually record with Twenty Five to Life? Then studio strength to you strength to unity Classic. and and um, New York's hardest two. Strength to unity was so good. Like keeping it real, it was such a classic. I didn't think it could be topped, but strength to unity, man. If not close, it could be slightly better. What do you guys think, Lewis and uh, Steve? Oh, I tend to. I, I, I'm kind of on that cusp as well, actually. I just, uh, for me, I think keeping it real, man, is just some of the, the tracks on there. Just, they just sound hot. They just don't know what it is, man. Obviously, it's that just that raw edge in it. But yeah, keeping it real for me. When when did you actually leave Twenty Five to Life? Because Twenty Five to Life was up at the pinnacle. Like you guys were were massive, man. So so what happened? Then? Why, why did you end up leaving Twenty Five to Life? Rick was very difficult. There. Um, a lot of issues going on before I joined the band. So that's why people had been leaving in the nineties. No one ever got kicked out of 25 to life. Everyone left and everyone pretty much left for the same reason, you know, dealing with the the same person. And so when I joined, I was very excited to join the lineup that I was joining. Actually, one thing I hate about strength through unity is the fact that Beto is not on it. And Warren should have been on it too. Like we had a really solid lineup. So we went to California in May of that year and the band had a big fight because like Rick canceled all these good shows that we had. So he could book all these DIY shows and like make all the money with like his merch and all his his different stuff. And he wanted to keep everything like, you know, in, in, in the smaller places instead of the bigger clubs, but he didn't tell the band he was doing this. So we went out there thinking we were having like these certain shows and then we got out there and it was all different shows. Uh, and then like half of the tour was canceled and half the band quit on that tour. And that's when I convinced Mike from one for one to join. So he joined for like six weeks, but then he saw what was going on with Rick. Actually the day before we recorded strength through unity, we were coming back from Europe and me and Rick got in a fight in the airport. What happened was, was coming correct was supposed to play Europe too. And they were all supposed to fly out, but instead Rick just found some people in Europe to play the Come and Correct songs so he wouldn't have to pay for the airfare. And so um, we're on the airport, at the airport on the way back, sitting at Burger King. He was just like, yeah, I pulled that off. You know, he's like, yo, they don't care as long as long as I'm there. That's all anyone cares about. And so I was like, yo, so you're trying to say like, no one cares about the rest of us. You're trying to say we ain't a band, right? He's like, yo, it's all about me, you know? And I'm like, I'm like, yo, that's fucked up. He's like, yo, you don't like it? Go back to one for one. Right. And I was just like, I didn't want to like get in a huge fight there. So I kind of just was like, all right, all right, whatever. Like, so I, I, I walked away, you know, like, uh, 
But that was it for Mike. Mike didn't say anything, but he was done. The funny thing is Mike didn't leave for like another couple of weeks after that, but that's when like he, he kind of knew he, he was done. So the next day we come home and I thought we had like another week to finish writing Strength of Unity because we had four songs down and we still needed three more. So we were going to take the week off and uh, just write. We had no shows coming up. And I get home at like four in the morning and then at seven phone rings. Yo, we got to record. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, now. He's like, I got the date wrong. We have to record this album right now. I was like, we're not even done writing it. Right? He's like, I'll pick you up in like an hour. I'm like, fuck. So it's like 100 wow. degrees. He drives us to the city and he just leaves us there. And so me, Mike, and Fred are just sitting there like, what an asshole. Fuck. Like, we got to write these songs now, right? So um, what we did was we, we recorded the four songs we already had, which was Strength of Unity, Took My Kindness for Weakness, uh, Turning Point, and Loose with the Truth. And then we had to come up with three songs. So he had the the riff for Loyal to the Grave, and we had like an older version of it where like it was like rhythmically different, but we kind of just like reworked it. So we kind of put that one together really quick. Like we recorded it in like a half hour. And that's why it's so short. Like once it got to a point where it was just like, all right, this is good. I was like, all right, I like short songs anyway. So I was like, let's just end the song right here. And then I played guitar on that, uh, Absence of Sincerity. We never played it live because we just had to do it quick. And then we did uh, Make It Work. And then right after, Mike left the band. So we never did those songs live with him until 2018 and so it was just like you know the band wasn't the same band anymore that i had joined and so like i was kind of disappointed but i was still into it at the same time then we got dave on bass dave was a great bassist dave was fun to hang out with on tour and biohazard took us out on tour which to me was a big deal and they had asked us to play and it was like 10 or 11 shows but like you know it wasn't like a continuous story it's just like weekends so this was like after biohazard's like peak of like urban discipline this was like five years later they didn't have bobby on guitar anymore so like the hardcore kids weren't going crazy during their sets like they used to and so like we were just killing it every night because all the hardcore kids would like come up smash all the metal heads and like you know how, how it is uh for like the big crossover shows and so it was great and then rick was selling all his shit and then on the fourth show, we were playing Connecticut and Biohazard's management came up to Rick and was like, hey, we don't mind if you sell 25 to life stuff, but you can't sell all this other stuff. You know, it's like you're cutting into our merch. And then Rick flipped out. He's like, fuck you. Then we ain't playing. And then he like walked out and I was like, yo, fuck that. I was like, we're a band. You don't just say we're not playing and not talk to us. And so I was like, yo, we'll play without you. You know, like we're playing no matter what. You know, if, if the crowd has to sing, the crowd has to sing. But, you know, we're playing this show. So then we, we play. And on stage, he's like, yo, fuck bands that are sellouts. Fuck all bands that go on MTV. And he gets like the crowd riled up. like, And they're like, yeah, fuck those bands. And like, it's pretty obvious who he's talking about. And I'm just like, oh, fucking. You know, we get this great tour with this great band. And he's fucking this up for us. Like every time we want to do something big, he wants to bring it back down to DIY so he can make like hundreds or a thousand dollars a day, but we're making like 75 bucks a day, a hundred bucks a day. So it's like, I can't go on tour and not get paid. So it's like, I can't keep doing this. So right after the set, like I'm carrying the drums outside and like Evan comes up to me right after he's like, yo, that is not cool at all, man. And I'm like, you're right. That's fucked up, man. And he's like, yo, why don't you do a new band without him? I'll manage you guys. And I did think about it for a second, but <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I don't know. I was just mad, you know, like we were all just like, yo, what the fuck, man? Like that was not cool at all. And that's pretty much when I knew I was done. I was just like, I left like within a couple of weeks after that. 
I finished up oh, the shows man. that I had. I was like, I'll still play with you guys till you get another drummer because not, not for Rick, but for, you know, for, for Fred and Dave and, and like, and I really felt for Fred, you know, cause he, you know, he started the band. I didn't really want to leave, but I couldn't, I couldn't go on with, uh, with Rick anymore. Did Fred stay not too much longer after that himself? Did he? After I left, they wrote and recorded, um, their first full length album. Uh, and then they toured that a lot. Like I know they, they toured a lot. They went back to Japan again. Uh, they did a bunch of Europe tours and that was going on for a while. And then the band actually broke up and like, that was it. Like, cause as far as we were concerned, like, you know, there's no 25 life without Fred. Then Rick was just doing like coming correct for us. So when the band came back without Fred, it was just because like he decided to call uh, whatever band he had at that moment, 25, to life because coming correct wasn't drawing the same numbers that 25 to life was everyone but us straight from the heart of london every now and again we know rick he has this episode where he goes online and he writes a load of bullshit but i think you wrote a post and it was something along along the lines of um you were kind of defending 25 to life because you felt that rick had kind of destroyed his legacy do you remember writing that post? I, I remember writing several posts of that okay. nature, so I don't know the the, the exact one, but yeah, it, you know, it, that's one of the reasons I wanted to get the band back together again was was uh, people didn't know the band like as it was, like what we were. I wanted people to to understand it and and uh, see it live, hear it, and and I think that's what we did. You know, uh, so whose idea was it to bring twenty five to life back and it's mean on vocals? It was, how did that all come about? Again, it was kind of like gradual um in 2015 i was really high one night <laughs> and I, I remember i was in the shower and i i just like i was mad and just like thinking about like about us being a good band and how like you know like what could have been how, how fucked up it was and then i started thinking like what if we had a different singer and then i like uh i just started thinking about it i was like wait a second that could actually and then i, I remember i called one of my friends i was like what do you think the reaction would be if uh you know if we did 25 live and we had a different singer He's like, you think anyone? He's like, no, oh, dude, that would be huge. I was like, all right. And then I talked to some of the, you know, the guys, and like, you know, like, yeah, you know, that sounds sounds like a good, a good idea. And then it was it was the weirdest thing. Like, um, Joe Hardcore hits me up. This is like maybe a week later, right? And he's just like, yo, fuck it. Why don't you just do um, Twenty Five Life and get Shaggy to sing? Shaggy, our guitarist from Fat Nuts, that doesn't sing at all. Um. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, like, and I told Shaggy that he's like me. He's like, what? <laughs> why me? Yeah, I'm like, uh, but uh, I was like, yo, it's weird that you like are asking me about this because it's actually something that we thought about, like with, with other singers. And uh, he's like, yo, we'll do this as hardcore. And I was like, all right. But 2015 was a very bad year in my life. I had a lot going on, and I just saw so it just wasn't the right time. Then. 2016 came around and Rick did that barbecue backyard thing. I'm sure you know about it. The drum machine. Uh, thing, yeah. Oh, with a, with a Nazi dude. Yeah. Or some. Yeah. Yeah. With no drummer. You know, yeah. that was bad. Which that is especially bad. an insult to me because I'm the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even call you, you up for that. I mean? <laughs> That's like the most viewed 25 to life thing. But it's not even 20. He wasn't even billed as 25 to life, but everyone wants to advertise it as, as such. And it got like the metal mainstream attention and it's like everywhere. And it was just like, now this is like a band I have to be embarrassed about, you know, and everyone's just like talking shit everywhere. And I'm like, this fucking sucks, you know? And this is the most yeah. popular band I was in and we're just being trashed everywhere. And now it's like worse. 
And then um, 2017 comes around and my good friend, Virginia, and you guys know her from, from the um, uh, hardcore documentary, she passed away and that, that hurt. And she was one of my, my very best friends. Cause like when I first started going to shows, like I met her when I was 16, you know, I wasn't old enough to drive. And so I would take train places or I just meet people and like hitch rides with people. There weren't a lot of people traveling then. And she was one of them. And so there was like this period in late 93 where we went to see life of agony, like, like all over, like upstate. And that's where we really like, you know, became good friends and everything. And then like, she was like the first big 25 life fan. Like, um, when she passed, I wanted to watch the the New York hardcore documentary, you know, um, to see her. And then I was looking at the comments and everyone was just talking shit on 25 to life. And it just got me mad. And like, it just kind of lit fire under my ass. So I went and posted on Facebook. Uh, I was like, <laughs> Rick is not the singer of 25 to life. I was like, we're not doing anything, but if we ever did, there would be a different singer. And I left it at that. And that thread just exploded. So like, the first comment was Stickman, I'll sing. And then um, the second comment, I think, was Joe Hardcore. Like, this is Hardcore 2017. One of my friends calls me up. He's like, yo, you got to do this. And I'm like, I don't know. Because I was still kind of like, you know, stressed out mentally over things. And uh, he's like, no, 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 you, you got to do this. I was like, I don't know. He's like, no, you got it. And like, everyone wanted it. And uh, I was talking to Beto and Mike, like, regularly throughout all the period that I was not in 25 life and we weren't doing anything, but Fred was someone that kind of like, I would see just more once in a while, like every couple of years, he'd like show up at a show or I talked to him, you know, not as often. I hadn't talked to him in a while. So it was really like dependent on Fred. And then finally I got, yeah, I just called Fred and uh, he, he was like totally into it. Right. He's like, Stickman wants to sing. And I was just like, yeah, he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, so we'll sound really good. I was like, yeah, we're going to sound really good, man. And he's like, yeah. He's like, but let, let, let's book a practice first, see how it sounds before we uh, commit to anything. So we booked a practice and, you know, it, it just worked. You know, it was, it was a good lineup. It, it was actually the best lineup I ever had any band I was ever in. Like as far as like, like everybody, like there's no weak links, you know, everybody shows up, everybody's professional. Everyone wants everything to be even between the members, you know, so it, it was, uh, it was good. So when do you decide to do the, the new EP hunting season. It was just kind of came naturally. Like, cause the original plan was just to do the one show and, and that's it. I didn't know what was going to happen. I really had no intention of, of taking it any further than that. But like, once we started jamming, everything was just clicking and like Fred is just a riff machine. So like, you know, before we start playing songs, he just comes in and he just starts playing riffs. I just start playing beats. Beto starts ripping solos, you know what I mean? Like, so we're just kind of like, it was a good, like a team effort. Like everybody put their parts in and um, it was good. All Heart was the first one we, we really all uh, wrote together where everybody in the band wrote like a part of the song and we wrote it in the studio where uh, hunting season was kind of like parts were written in the studio, but I'd go to Fred's house and we'd uh, write stuff there too. And then from start to finish, like Fred wrote that, like with the, like with like a drum machine at home and like presented it to us. Are you planning to release any more music? Are you planning to do more? Right now, there's like, I don't know what's going on, to be honest. Like, um, I still talk to the guys, but we haven't talked about like band stuff, you know, just talk about like whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, this, this, this pandemic has kind of like changed everything. Because like, we were kind of on hi hiatus since like 2018. I wanted to stop playing shows to focus on um, new songs. That's what we were doing. But like, we had a good run where for like, 
almost a year and a half, everyone was free all the time. We were able to do it. But then people just started having things in their lives and we just couldn't get everyone together at the same time. Then I hurt my wrist and I still don't know if I'm fully recovered because I haven't played drums. <laughs> so oh, we'll see. Yeah. It's, been, it's, it's been almost, I haven't played drums on a set in over two years. Everyone just had things going on. It kind of fell apart, but it's, it's not over. It's just, you know, We'll see what happens, you know. Would there ever be a one-for-one reunion? The one, the In Search of CD is being released on, re-released on vinyl with on um, Asia Venus Records. That's going to be coming out soon. And he's also doing a um, limited, that's going to be a limited edition, but if it sells well, he's going to press more. And then also um, a limited seven inch of the song uh, this day. Have you talked about playing again? One-for-one is, um, I don't like to say never, but the odds of one one ever playing again are pretty much next to nothing. Oh, okay. I don't think Dan will ever sing again. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, that's what he says. You know, like what about Homicidal? Uh, you you play bass in Homicidal? Is that you looking to do any more music with them? Or I talk to um, those guys regularly all the time. Like I talked to Brian. I talked to three of those guys yesterday. You know. Yeah, we we were writing new songs, and then I got together with Mike, and we put together um, five new songs. But then it just uh, scheduling became a problem and we couldn't get everybody together uh, at the same time. So, um, but maybe at another time. Who knows, man, with this COVID shit. I'm hoping by summer we'll be back to some kind of normality. But um, Seth, man, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. You've been like, it's been amazing, man. Like, it's been really, really good. I've learned a lot. And um, yeah, man, just I want to let you know that the band you've been in, man, have played a major part in like in in our lives man do you know what i mean it's been the soundtrack of our lives some of them songs man so big respect to you i've just got a, a couple more questions the first question is so you play quite a few instruments isn't it you play bass you play piano drums guitar you're like um a one-man band over there yeah i try to be you know like uh i started on piano and then i started drums in like the school band when i was eight and then i started guitar when i was 10 and then bass kind of came later. Like I, I never took bass seriously until I joined Thomas Idol. I do want to play some more instruments too. I just can't where I live now, but I'm planning on buying a house soon. I want to get like a trumpet and a cello and I'm going to try all wow. that stuff. When <laughs> That's I, dope. When I, um, yeah, I also was a music teacher for a while. Like I was a music minor in college. I was originally a music major, but um, I'm not social and they wanted me to play with like the kids in school and I was like oh no that's fucking crazy <laughs> I know you play like a lot of Mozart stuff as well because I was checking out your YouTube channel man and it was fucking really good so anyone that's listening to this go and check out Seth's uh, is it Homicidal 1? the number one not written out Homicidal 1 you got some cool stuff on there so go and check it out uh, I've got one final question for you and this, we're going to take a bit of a sidestep on this one What's your, I just wanted to have your opinion on like you know, a lot of things have happened in America over the last four years, from Trump coming in, being impeached a, a couple of times, to Black Lives Matter, to um, the storming of the of Capitol Hill, to Trump leaving the office and Biden coming in. Do you have an opinion on it? If you could summarize the last four years in America, what's it been it, like? It's difficult. Like, I, I am very um, disappointed in a lot of Americans. I mean... Obviously, it's not most of us, but the way our constitution is uh, set up, uh, you know, a, a minority of the people control everything. You know, uh, it, it all goes back to when um, they designed the constitution in order to get the slave states to join the union. They had to give them 
the smaller states more power than they deserve. That still holds true today. So, you know, all these uh, southern states and smaller states have a lot more power than they should because they have two senators uh, from each of those states. And um, it's like they control us. Uh, like when you hear Trump speak, it's like, how do you not know that, that like there's something wrong with this? Like, and the, the, the amount of people that fell for it, I'm a left wing guy. I've been a left wing guy, but like right wing guys in the past, they at least like spoke normally. Like, I just don't understand how like people like saw this guy talk and be like, that's what we need, you know? And it, 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 it baffles me. And, um, it's crazy, but like, it's, it's American culture. Like I'm, I'm also not surprised, you know, um, Americans have always been like anti-intellectual. Our, our, our country is kind of like going the same way as well now, man. Most most of Western Europe is going the kind of same way. No one no one cares about what people who have studied or had and had a had have been involved in a field of theirs for most of their life from university up until now. Like that's their craft, and people are like, nope, I don't believe you. I, I believe I believe the the snake oil salesman instead. And that's kind of, that's kind of like where we're at at the moment. I feel that's where I like, that's what I went to school for. My major was political science and, um, and, and my father was a political science teacher. So I kind of like really grew up with all of this, you know, it, it's happened before throughout history. This is how dictators come to power. It's kind of like scary to, to, to see the cycle happening again. I was going to say, how do you see America panning out in the next four years? Obviously it's hard to predict the future, but, um, do you think it's going to go back to business as normal, like before Trump? I don't know. I, I, I don't think it can. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's like a, that was a turning point, like for the country, you know, like, especially after, you know, the Capitol riot. That was on my birthday too. That fucking sucked. Um, <laughs> too many people believe in things that are just so far away from reality that I don't know how you recover from that. Like, you know, then you're like, basically saying QAnon. Yeah. That, 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 that's a major part yeah. of it. Yeah, absolutely. We had one of our ministers a couple of years back say people are tired of listening to experts and people around the country went, yeah, I'm tired of listening to experts. It's like experts know what they're talking about. Stop. Don't, don't listen to that. <laughs> you don't have to be a university scholar. I mean, obviously it helps having a good education, but, um, it's the old anti-intellectualism thing is just dangerous, man. It's really, really dangerous. People are believing what they want to believe. Uh, and I think that's, that's the gist of it. it, it it's scary. Uh, you know, some of it like reminds me of like the, the Capitol riot reminded me of like uh, the 1923 um, beer hall putsch in, in Germany when um, Hitler tried to, you know, take over the government before he was successful. And, you know, that's when he got arrested. It kind of led to them actually taking over, you know, nine years later. So I'm just hoping that this doesn't, uh, you know, turn into something like that as well, you know, and they did it with a, a minority, minority of the people taking over the, the whole. So, and you know, that's why I was born. Like my grandfather went through that. He had to leave. That's why he came uh, to the United States. Uh, I think that helps me see it differently too. He had to leave or, or like we, we had family that didn't get out, you know, um, it kind of just, I don't know. I just, I, I just feel like it's, it's history repeating itself. And I hope it doesn't go to in, in the same direction. The people that stormed Capitol Hill, what are they complaining about? What are they fighting for? Do they actually believe that the vote was rigged? Yeah. 
Yeah, they really do. They, they, they really, really do. actually yeah. believe that, right? Uh, I, I, I've seen people like you know, um, you know, like regular people that I know. Like they, they believe that it was you know stolen. All the lines that these people are saying, people are falling for it. How does it all look to you guys over there, like watching us? From that, from how I read stuff online and from people who I speak to, not necessarily in the hardcore scene. And some in the hardcore scene, there are a lot of people who actually fuck with Trump and like his style of politics. And I've had conversations with one person who um, believes that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him. And I asked him, where did you see all this stuff? And he goes, one American news network and Newsmax and all the the, the super right wing um, conservative media types. I mean, I'm not I'm not not to say that you can't disregard what people are saying on the right because there are some people on the left who do spout some bullshit as well and fallacies and stuff. Absolutely. But the, the fact that we've now at a point now where people basically turn around and said, oh, Fox News is fucking the enemy now when they've been one of the biggest cheerleaders of fucking Donald Trump throughout his presidency. So for them to just turn around and go, like, yeah, Fox News is fucking bullshit. These are the new uh, media that we want to listen to. It just basically proves that they don't want to go with any facts. They just want to be told that this is the truth and this is what it is. But um, from an outside perspective, we see similarities and people love Donald Trump. They wish they had, uh, they wish yeah. they, some people here wish they had like a, a, we had a prime minister who was like Donald Trump, who was anti-facts, um, says what he wants with with um, no truth. And he's just there to fucking annoy liberal people and, and left-wing type people. And, and that's it. I think these people, they mistake that kind of like almost toddler level of talking to people for honesty and calling power out. They present themselves as the men and the people, the people that are going to sort of be the ones to bring down the establishment and all that kind of stuff. We've got the same thing happening here with um, people like Nigel Fries, for example, likes to present himself as a man of the people. He's, he's, he's the furthest thing from it. It's nationalism, isn't it? That's what it is. Well, yeah, the nationalism's yeah. a part of because yeah. basically what you've got in both America and over here, I think, is a, a massive amount of people which are which feel like they've been ignored for for generations. These guys are presenting as the answer to that, and everyone wants someone to blame. It is sad because there are a lot of people who, let's be real, they have been forgotten. As we got a lot of industrial towns back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they all had jobs and they all had opportunity and things were good. And then the 80s come and a different style of politics come and things start with the free market gets even more sort of like, um, it, it just accelerates and it's like, yo, we don't want to be paying people what they should be getting paid, deserve to be paid. So we're going to send their jobs to different markets around the world. And then a family that is earning decent money going on holidays is now gripped with unemployment and drugs and, and violence and all sorts of bad stuff that's happening to them. So then when you get these snake oil type salesmen who come along and go, oh, these are the elites who've done this to you, when it's like, you're part of that elite who was doing all this type of stuff. Like You loved this shit when it was unregulated markets in the 80s and 90s and stuff. I mean, it's still going on to this day. Do you think Biden will turn it around? I don't have faith in him. I mean, I have, and I actually haven't been following like every single thing that he's been doing and, and passing because I'm kind of just like overloaded for the last like few years. So I'm trying to like not pay attention to politics as much because it stressed me out a lot. But I see Biden is as part of the problem. I mean, he's one of the people that put America in a place where they felt like they needed to elect Trump. 
You know, I, I think like the left is a lot of the problem is the left because when they get in power, they don't do the things that they came in power to do, and they tend to govern more from the right. Or you know, when, and so when things go wrong and they wind up being the corrupt guys, people just jump back to the right. They're like, oh, we tried the left guy. They don't they don't look at the policies behind it. It's like, well, the the guy that said he was on the left was actually doing right wing stuff. And they're like, oh no, he's corrupt, and so like no more left, and so they they, they jump right back to the right. You know, and that's what people do. They just go back and forth. They're like, oh, this guy fucked up. We got to try the other party. But they don't look at like the policies uh, behind it. So, I mean, Biden does seem to be more to the left than he had been in the past. But, you know, I just look at it. He is who he is. He's done what he's done. You know, there's a a lot of people are dead because of him. You know, he's a warmonger. You know, he supported wars. He supported, you know, people getting locked up. In this country, you know, he, he's been behind a lot of bad things for, for a long time, you know. So, like, I voted for him because, you know, I thought America was about to be a dictatorship. So, um, I'd vote for him again over Trump. But I still give a disapproval when I ask if I approve of, uh, of his presidency just at a default. I don't see how Republicans are going to work with him. I don't think they're going to meet on any common ground. You know, the, since Obama became president, the Republican default has been give them nothing, even if we yeah. agree with them. So I just don't see it. I think a lot of problem too. I think people were better off when they were brainwashed by TV instead of brainwashed by the internet. It, it made more uh, sense. I think with people getting all these crazy ideas all over the internet, I just don't see people coming back to their senses. Yeah, it's true, man. The internet is... It's, it's, we, you just said something which is correct, man. We thought TV brainwashes people, but the internet is a whole new ball game, man. There's so much... There's yeah. so much misinformation out there from all different sort of like whatever side you, you 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 proclaim to be a part of there's there's I'll read stuff on left wing sites and they'll be saying something and I'll be like that's not true man like literally that is not true yeah but it happens a lot more on the right side than the left side the right is just it's just it's just it's a complete shit show at the moment man everyone but us Straight from the heart of London. Yo, Seth, man, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. It's been a... I've really enjoyed it. It's been an amazing time, man. Anything you want to say before we um, shut up shop? Well, thank you for having me. You know, it's, it really is an honour and it was unexpected uh, even to be asked. I haven't done anything like this uh, before. So, it, you know, it's really great. And I am serious. I really do want to uh, play London one way or another, <laughs> right? So, like, I gotta gotta figure out a way to make this happen, right? Not just London too. I want to, like, I I want to go around the UK, right? I, I gotta go up to Scotland too. Well, if you ever decide to come, well, hopefully it'd be of a band. But if you come for a holiday, yeah, exactly, that, that's you know, true. We'll look after you, man. Yeah. Well, what I'll do is if I come up for a holiday, maybe I could arrange something. I'll bring a guitar and just jump up with someone so I can at least yeah. play. You know? Yeah. I, <laughs> we can do that. Know? I'm just gonna plug my own shit. Yo, check out my YouTube page. I got a lot of these uh, old videos. And I got a lot of my solo music. I got videos of all the bands I've been in. YouTube.com slash homicidal, the number one. Go check it out, man. And that's it, man. You guys, you want to say anything before we go, Steve Lewis? I'm just, I'm just glad. I'm just happy that I managed to speak to someone in 25 to Life, like a, a bona fide member of the band. Not hate to say it, but not a scab member. Obviously, they came back a couple of years ago with Stick Man, and that's... You got, you got your. You took it. You took it back, man. And that, that's a real cool, cool thing to to have done. And um, 
I hope that um, you guys can maybe one day come and play again and come over once all this corona shit is done. So and hope maybe, I don't know, probably won't happen, but one for one will be cool as well. But yeah, who knows? Wishful thinking. Anyway, man, this has been the Everyone But Us podcast. Thank you and good night. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to the Everyone But Us podcast straight from the heart of London. Wait, 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 wait,